I want to go ahead and take some time to continue to pray uh, for us as a church body and for everything that is going on in our nation. So let's pray together this morning. Our Lord, we come to you today because we know that you care about everything going on in our nation and you care about everything going on in our hearts. And so first, Lord, I want to take some time to confess our own personal sins to you, our pride, our hatred, our arrogance, and our apathy towards the oppressed. Lord, we know that you care about systemic injustice in any nation, and ours particularly against the black community. We pray for the reform that is needed in our law enforcement, in our legal system, in our society, in our society in general. And Lord, we are thankful for the nationwide recognition for change. We're thankful for the peaceful protests. And Lord, we pray for the families of those who have been killed by police brutality. We pray that they would know peace and justice. We also pray for the families of those police officers who have uh, been killed as a result of these riots or harms. We pray that you would give our police officers wisdom as they go out and work. Give them wisdom in how to respond during these very difficult times. And we pray for the same thing for the leaders of our nation. And Lord, we ask that you'd work in each one of our hearts and how we should respond. Um, And if we need to repent, Lord, ourselves. God, we continue to pray for the global pandemic and for the well-being of everyone as they begin to leave their homes and engage in the world again. And finally, we pray for the preaching of your word today, that your truth would be spoken and you would use it to change the lives of your people. Amen. Okay, well, today Ken is out of town, so I am filling in, and we are going to take this time to finish our series in the Gospel of Mark called Familiar Phenomena. And we've been going through this series of familiar miracles of Jesus in the book of Mark. And we're going to end, of course, with the big one, the resurrection. And so let's get to that story this morning. But first, um, in season two of NBC's TV series, The Office, A paper salesman named Dwight Schrute has been named the salesman of the year by his company, Dunder Mifflin Paper Company. And in this particular episode, Dwight makes a speech at his company's sales convention as the best salesman of the year. Now, Dwight has a fear of public speaking um, and is afraid of failing at this speech. So while he's preparing for the speech, He looks at the audience and he tells the audience of a different time where he failed at a spelling bee. And he says, when I was in the sixth grade, I was a finalist in my school spelling bee. It was me against Raj Patel. And I misspelled in front of the entire school the word failure. And failure is what we're talking about today. And who hasn't failed? We have all failed in one way or another in some fashion or another, 
and at some time or another. We have fallen in sin, fallen in faithfulness, fallen in courage, fallen in commitment. We have all stumbled in our discipleship at one point or another. Is there any hope for us? In our passage today, I believe we'll see that yes, there is hope for us in our journey of discipleship to be faithfully obedient in following our Lord. So we're going to get into our passage, and again, that's Mark chapter 15, verses 40 through 16, 8. And I'm not going to read that passage beforehand. We are going to go through it together and discover it together as we study it. But the context I want to go through before concerns the events leading up to Jesus' resurrection. So that's the events leading up to his death and his death and crucifixion as well. It begins in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is betrayed by Judas and handed over to the Jewish council. Now, his disciples are there. What did his disciples do? According to Mark, they all left him and fled. One disciple, we assume, is Mark, follows Jesus for a bit, but they catch him by his linen cloth, and so he leaves it behind and runs away naked. And afterwards, Peter, the disciple who said he would never abandon Jesus, denies him publicly three times, as Jesus said he would. And what a mess. What a failure. All of Jesus' disciples have left him. And afterwards, Jesus is unjustly accused of blasphemy. He is beaten, mocked, sentenced to crucifixion, flogged, and ultimately dies after hanging for three hours on the cross. Meanwhile, at least in Mark's text of the gospel, Jesus' disciples, um, the eleven at this point, are nowhere to be found. But what we'll see next are some unexpected followers of Jesus watching from a distance. So let's get into our text, and we'll begin in verse 40 of chapter 15. Let me read verses 40 and 41 for us. There are also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Less and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Women followers of Jesus. So far in Mark's gospel, it has been an all-male cast supporting and following Jesus. Now, there have been a number of minor characters who were women, all great examples of faith. There was Simon's mother-in-law. There was the woman with the hemorrhage, the Syrophoenician woman, the widow with her two coins, and the woman with the expensive ointment and perfume who anointed Jesus. But all were, for the most part, anonymous and remained in their respective passages in Mark's story. Those in the formal category of disciples have been men, and as we saw, they have all fled in fear of the Jewish leaders and of the Romans. But apparently it wasn't just these three that were female followers of Jesus, but there were many women who ministered and cared for Jesus. And so on their discipleship journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, these women would care for and love Jesus. Now, who are these three women? 
The first one, Mary Magdalene, is one that is also mentioned in the other Gospels at the resurrection story, so she's very well known. But she was possessed by seven demons that Jesus had apparently um, expelled from her. And then we have another Mary who was a mother, and some have identified her as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Although it is strange that Mark does not um, simply identify her as such. But we have two Marys, Mary Magdalene and this Mary who is a mother. And finally, we have Salome, who might also be a mother. We don't know much about her, but in the parallel passage, I believe in Matthew, there is present the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So maybe that's who she is. So we have potentially two mothers and a woman who used to be demon-possessed, who are now on the scene instead of Jesus' disciples, the men who had followed Jesus all this time. What are these women doing? They're observing the crucifixion of Christ from a distance. In Mark's gospel, the act of seeing and of vision it has been a common theme of, of understanding. So these women have seen and understood that Jesus, the one they believed to be the Messiah, had indeed died on the cross. Okay, they saw him hang there, and they saw him take his last breath. They were witnesses to it. So the question now is, what are these women going to do? Will they flee Golgotha after seeing their master captured and killed? Will they let his body decompose on the cross like a criminal's would? We know that's not how John the Baptist's disciples treated his body. Back in, I think, Mark 6, when Herod beheaded John the Baptist, his disciples came and recovered his body, and they buried John's body in a tomb. And it's an act of love and respect and faithfulness of the disciples to care for the body in such a way. But where are Jesus' disciples at this time? And what will these women do next? Well, let's continue as we're introduced to someone new in verse 42. When evening had already come because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Verse 44. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Okay, so it's evening on the preparation day. And this is the day on which Jesus was crucified. Evening had come which meant that there were probably a couple of hours before sundown. So this would have been Friday evening for us. When sundown comes, that's when the Sabbath would begin. So this man, Joseph of Arimathea, he is a prominent member of the council, which I assume refers to the Sanhedrin. And he must be a prominent member if he is able to quickly approach Pilate and make a request. The council, the Sanhedrin, is that Jewish group of leaders, the high priests, the chief priests, um, the scribes, the elders, and so on. These are the ones who had just unjustly accused Jesus of blasphemy and demanded that he be crucified. 
Joseph is also described as waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, generally speaking, every Jew would have been looking forward to the kingdom of God. But in Mark's gospel, this phrase is particularly connected with the mission and message of Jesus. So I think that, along with his actions here in the gospel of Mark, will lead us to believe that he is also a disciple of Jesus, albeit he is one in secret Um, because of his position in the council. So Joseph desired to take down the body of Jesus, but he had to get permission from Pilate. And so approaching Pilate as a member of the council, of the Sanhedrin, asking for the body of a man that they condemned as blasphemous, and that Pilate crucified as a criminal, was indeed bold and courageous. Other translations say he took a great risk approaching the governor. He risked his position in the council, his status under Roman authority, his freedom, his own safety, all so that he could give this Jewish criminal a proper burial. And it reminds me a bit of the book of Esther when Esther risked her life approaching King Ahasuerus. And we know in that book, uh, Esther is approaching the king to speak on the behalf of the Israelite people. And approaching King Ahasuerus um, unannounced could lead to your untimely death. And so there was this tension that in this approach that Esther had up to King Ahasuerus. And so that reminds me of Joseph here as he is approaching Pilate. It is indeed a risk. And for whatever reason, Pilate gives him what he requests. Maybe the centurion had a role in it. Okay, and if you know from right before the verse right before this passage, when Jesus dies, there's a centurion there who says, after everything, that Jesus must have been the Son of God um, at the crucifixion. So, maybe that's why, maybe he convinced Pilate to give Joseph the body. For whatever reason, Pilate gives it to him. So what does Joseph do next? Verse 46. Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were looking on to see where he was laid. Now again, Joseph only has a couple of hours to do all this before the Sabbath begins. Um, Remember, because it was evening when he retrieved the body. And a man of Joseph's position and wealth would have certainly not retrieved Jesus' body by himself. He probably had servants to help him uh, take down the body and carry it. Joseph places Jesus in what was probably his own family tomb, but a new one. Joseph had the wealth and means to purchase a tomb like this or to create one. It would have been normal for a criminal to receive this kind of treatment after execution especially a criminal that has just been crucified. Most crucified criminals were left to hang or decay on the cross, or they would be tossed into some sort of mass grave for criminals who had been crucified. But Joseph takes a great risk to acquire Jesus' body, and at his own expense provides a tomb for Jesus' body to rest in. And at the end of it all, there's a large stone that Joseph and his men roll in front of the tomb. And so you can see the contrast between Joseph, a man who was willing to risk um, himself and everything he had for Jesus, 
and Jesus' own disciples who fled when danger approached. And at the end of the chapter, we see that the women have continued to follow Jesus' body. So they have witnessed not only his death, not only his final breath on the cross, his crucifixion, but now they have witnessed his burial. They know where his body is. They know where um, the grave is located. So they know that he was crucified. They know that he died. They know that he has been buried and where he was buried. Chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very, very early on, the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Okay, so the way that the Jews counted the days during this time was in relation to the Sabbath. Um, so you have the first day after the Sabbath, and then the second, and so on, and so forth. So this is early morning on the first day after the Sabbath, which would have made it early Sunday morning. We see now what the women wanted to do for Jesus. They wanted to anoint Jesus' body with spices, which might have been in the form of an oil or a lotion. And these spices, the purpose was to slow the decay of the body and also to help with the, the stench. But this is also something that any Jew who wanted to give a proper burial would do for um, a person that they cared about. So this is an act of love and devotion for these women. As they had ministered to Jesus in his life, they are also coming to minister to him uh, after his death. And then they ask one another who they could ask to roll away the giant stone in front of the tomb. Okay, so the stone was apparently big enough that these three women could not remove it by themselves. But of course, we might be thinking, if Jesus' disciples were there with them, then the men would be able to roll away the stone. It's another painful reminder that the disciples weren't there. But they don't need to find someone to roll away the stone because the stone has already been opened. And that sets the stage for the next few verses. Verse 5. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the scene shifts from outside the tomb to inside the tomb. Now, these tombs were normally made for the size of a family and had multiple places for multiple bodies, so you could walk inside them. And uh, as they needed more places for more families, they would uh, dig deeper into the stone. And what they see is something surprising that also frightens them. Okay, so my translation says they were amazed, but also could be mean alarmed or frightened. The word means that they were moved to an intense emotional state by what they saw. And it might seem strange, but strange, but Mark describes this person as a young man. Um, 
But I think there's two reasons that tell us that this is more than just a young man, aside from us knowing from the other Gospels that, that this is an angel. First, the man is wearing a white robe. Now, this word for white is only used in two places in the book of Mark here and at the Transfiguration to describe Jesus' clothes that were radiantly white. And so we can see there seems to be something similar going on here. There's something special about this white garment that this young man is wearing. And second, he talks to the women the way every angel talks to a human at first. He tells them, do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed. Do not be frightened. Every angel, because of their appearance, always has to tell their human audience not to be afraid. So there's a couple reasons here to believe that this is more than just a young man. Um, This is an angel. Um, aside from the fact that the giant stone has been moved aside. Certainly a young man would not be able to do that by himself. So there's an angel inside this now open tomb, and we know that the women are at the correct tomb, right? Because they scoped out the place before. So they're at the right place. They haven't come to the wrong tomb. Jesus was there. And the angel has a message for the women that has two parts, all right? First, Jesus of Nazareth right? The specific person, the person they followed, um, the person who in the beginning of Mark came from Nazareth to begin his ministry, their master. He did indeed die. So what they saw in the crucifixion, it actually happened. He actually died. But he has risen from the grave. Second, the angel wants the women to go and tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is alive and to meet him at Galilee. Okay, which is, of course, interesting because the disciples' journey begins at Galilee. It ends in Jerusalem. And now this second part begins at Jerusalem, and he wants to meet them back in Galilee. And so Jesus is alive, and he wants to meet them in Galilee, just as he said before, and we see this in Mark 14, 28. It says, And Jesus said to them, the disciples, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Okay, and so he is telling the angel, is giving this message that Jesus wants his disciples to have, the women as well, that he is alive and that he wants the the disciples and Peter to meet him in Galilee. Okay, and this part is important important because Jesus is extending an invitation to his disciples and to Peter. The 10 men who fled in Jesus's darkest hour, Jesus wants them to continue on their journey of discipleship and following and serving him. That one guy who just flat out denied ever knowing Jesus publicly three times, Jesus wants him to continue on his journey of discipleship. Now that Jesus is risen, the disciples can be restored once again to follow him. Their last act won't be an act of betrayal, of abandonment, of denial. They'll be given a new opportunity. Now how will their women respond? Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, as a reader, this is an unexpected response from these faithful women. At this good news, they run away, 
very afraid and trembling, and it seems as if they don't say anything. Now, we know that that's not the end historically and from the other Gospels. We know Matthew in his Gospel has an addition to this, that they fled in fear and joy, and that they met Jesus on the way to tell the disciples about him, and they worshipped him at his feet. And the disciples hear the message, they meet Jesus, and they spread his Gospel. And we know that history. But that's not, how, that's not how Mark ends this scene here. In this verse, these women seem a lot like the men who fled at Gethsemane. And so we learn even these faithful women are susceptible to the fear and the fleeing, just like the men were. We are all susceptible to the fears and failures that occur in the lives of the followers of Jesus. And so there's a couple things that I would like to reflect upon to end our passage. First of all, we see here some examples of faithfulness to Jesus when it's not easy to be faithful. The women are willing to follow Jesus even after he has been captured and crucified. Joseph of Arimathea was willing to put himself at risk in order to give Jesus a proper burial. So faithfully following Jesus for both of these examples involves risk. It involves courage. It involves overcoming their fears to faithfully obey. So we have some examples there. We also see that the Lord extends hope for restoration to the disciples who have failed in their faithfulness on their journey with Jesus. Ten of the disciples abandoned Jesus. Yet, he still wanted them to follow him. And even, even Peter himself failed in his journey by denying Jesus three times. Yet Jesus mention, mentions him specifically by name. He wants Peter to meet him in Galilee. Many of us have failed in some way against our Lord. You may have struggled with habitual sin. You may have lacked faith. You may have lacked courage. You may have lacked empathy. Yet from this passage, our living Savior shows that us that his desire for his followers is for them to be restored to him, even in our failures as disciples of Christ. And so I hope and pray that we will remember that in our journey of following Christ as we fail, because we're going to, that we remember that it is Jesus' desire for us to be restored in our walk with Christ. And so I encourage each of you to find a way, to think of a way to remember this, that even though we fail as disciples, um, Jesus wants us to continue on and to be restored in him and to continue on in our walk with Christ. One way that I have found um, for myself to remember this is, uh, um, is by using stones. And so I have a stone here. This is actually Ken's stone from his desk. My stone is at home, um, and it's actually pink. But Ken's has John 3.16 on here, and I thought it was so appropriate that we uh, sang, In Christ the solid rock I stand, um, because the stone reminds me of the stone that was moved away um, from the tomb. And it reminds me of Peter, 
the disciple who denied Jesus, and yet Jesus extended an invitation for him to be restored as his disciple, to continue to faithfully obey Jesus and follow him. So for me, I, I find uh, a stone has been a helpful reminder of Jesus' desire for us to be restored to him, even though we're going to fail and stumble in our faith. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much, Lord, from what we can learn from it. God, the greatest news in the world is that you rose from the grave. That even though you were crucified and had died and had been buried and there had been a giant stone put over your tomb, that you conquered death and you conquered sin and you are alive, Lord. And so we have great hope, not just for the distant future or the near future, but for now, Lord, that even in our failures to try and follow you, that you through your spirit will continue to guide us and restore us in being faithfully obedient in our walk with you. Help us to remember that. Help us to remember your desire for us is to be restored um, despite our failures in our walk with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. Okay, so... I want to thank you all for joining us this morning. Don't forget, um, we are planning to reopen uh, next Sunday, the 14th, for our first church service in person since, we, uh, since everything has happened. It's, I feel like it's been so long since we've seen you all. We miss you guys like crazy. Um, so next Sunday, uh, 10, 15 a.m., the service will begin again. And, of course, this is dependent upon no new significant increases in the coronavirus and no restrictions from the government. Um, and we will be implementing safety measures that we feel are necessary to ensure a safe environment. Um, we'll provide additional information sometime this week. You'll hear from us. Um, so please pray for the leadership of our church, for wisdom as we move ahead with these plans to meet together once again. All right, Lord willing, we will see you next Sunday.